Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Listener Rachel suggested this case, and while I usually don't cover cases from the East Coast, I decided to take a look. As I read through some of the news accounts about the murder, I knew that this is a story that needs to be told. Today, we travel to Barrington, Rhode Island, where Ernest, Alice, and Emily Brendel became the victims of a horrific crime. The Brendels led a storybook life. They were blessed and happy, right up until they met with the greed and avarice that would take it all away. Alice and Ernest met in the early 1970s at a mixer for Brown University alumni. Brown is an Ivy League school in Providence, Rhode Island. The two bonded over a shared love of literature, travel, and music. Before long, they married in Alice's hometown of Reading, Pennsylvania, and settled in Manhattan. Alice worked for the New York Library System, and Ernest was a corporate attorney. Ernest's life was busy. Splitting time between his career and his family made Ernest long for a quieter, simpler life. So, in 1979, they decided to slow the pace a little and move to Providence, Rhode Island. By 1983, Ernest was the general counsel for James E. Seagram's Corporation. That same year, Alice found out she was pregnant, and after Emily was born, the little family moved again. This time, they chose Barrington, Rhode Island, a small community known for Barrington Beach where people came to water ski, fish, and sail. The schools in Barrington have some of the highest ratings in the state, and the town is known as one of the safest in the whole country. The family purchased a white farmhouse, and Ernest left corporate life and opened his law office in one of the rooms of the house. For her part, Alice was excited to return to Brown University, where she took a job as the government documents coordinator. In 1988, Emily was in elementary school, and she kept Alice busy with various school activities. And Ernest, he had a nice, stable law practice going. The family went to church on Sundays and stayed active in their community. Things could not be better for them. But then they met Christopher Hightower. Hightower was originally from Florida, but had moved to Rhode Island to attend the University of Rhode Island, where he studied zoology. He met his first wife, Arlene Krebs, in 1973. Together, they would have two children. After his marriage to Arlene ended, he married his second wife, Suzanne, who was 12 years his junior. She had worked as a waitress at one of the restaurants that Hightower managed. During the mid-1980s, Christopher and Suzanne moved to Dayton, Ohio, where both were enrolled at Wright State University. Christopher was working on a doctorate in biomedicine, while Suzanne was pursuing a master's degree in education. It seems that luck was not on their side in Dayton. 
a series of fires started in their residence. The origins of these fires and the amount of damage done by them remains unclear, but Christopher used them as an excuse to delay taking his doctoral preliminary exams. Before either Christopher or Suzanne could finish their respective programs, they left Ohio and went back to Rhode Island, where they moved in with Suzanne's parents in Barrington. After arriving in Barrington, Christopher became a commodities trader. And it's anybody's guess how one goes from zoology to managing restaurants to biochemistry to commodities, but that's what Christopher did. He and Suzanne became active in their community. They attended the Barrington Congregational Church. Christopher taught Sunday school, coached Little League, and coached the kids' soccer team. He was good with children, and people in the community liked and trusted him. The Brendels and the Hightowers became fast friends, spending quite a bit of social time together. Now, Ernest was a frugal man. He was careful with his money. But he was also thinking that as Emily grew older, he wanted to plan for her future. He had been investing in the commodities market on his own. In March of 1989, Hightower suggested that he take over Ernest's accounts and manage commodities for him. Ernest agreed. This would be a fatal mistake on Ernest's part. Six months later, Hightower was still managing the Brendel's accounts, and they were coming in at a slight loss. Ernest decided that he could do better on his own and pulled his accounts from Hightower. Despite this, the couples remained friends. Ernest and Christopher were on such good terms that when Christopher asked Ernest for a $2,000 loan, so that he could buy computer equipment, Ernest gave it to him. In May of 1990, Hightower showed Ernest a report of a $60,000 return on a $75,000 investment. This was something he had done for another local family. This report convinced Ernest to give Hightower another chance with his investments, so Ernest gave Hightower $15,000 to invest. A few months later, the $15,000 that Ernest had invested with Hightower had dwindled to $3,100. Ernest wrote a formal letter to Hightower demanding that he repay the $2,000 loan for the computer equipment and asking that he also repay half of the $15,000 he'd lost. Ernest expected at least partial reimbursement because he could not understand how his investment could fail so miserably when the other family had been so wildly successful. Ernest suspected that something was up, so, like any good lawyer, he looked into it. That's when he found out that Hightower had lied. He had falsified the paperwork to make the investment look like it had earned a huge return. Ernest was livid. He filed a complaint against Hightower with the National Futures Association and the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. He claimed that Hightower had mismanaged his funds and asked that the commission revoke Hightower's license as a trading advisor. By the summer of 1991, Christopher Hightower was not in a good place. His wife was unhappy with him and their situation. His business was failing. 
and a man that was once his close friend, Ernest Brendel, was not only calling in his loans, but he was filing complaints with the Trade Commission. Brendel had written another letter to Hightower, a very strongly worded letter. In this letter, he accused Hightower of falsifying paperwork, faking investments, and he pointed out that since Hightower changed his phone number and is avoiding him, he's forced to handle this issue by mail. He tells Hightower that unless he makes the situation right, he's going to the authorities. He gave Hightower a deadline of September 17, 1991. Hightower did not respond to that letter, but the walls were closing in on him, and he knew it. And listeners, we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, it's easy to get caught up in what everyone else needs from you and not take the time to think about what you need for yourself. So many obligations like work, children, home, and family. But when we spend all of our time giving, it can leave us feeling stretched thin and burned out. Therapy can give you the tools to find more balance in your life so you can support others without leaving yourself behind. BetterHelp can help you set boundaries and find balance in your life. I should know, BetterHelp was there for me during one of the most challenging times of my life. If you're looking to find a better work-life balance, BetterHelp is there for you. Best of all, it's entirely online. BetterHelp is convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. Find balance with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash gone today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash gone. Desperate people do desperate things when they feel that their back is to the wall. The September 17th deadline rolled around, and Christopher Hightower couldn't pay Ernest back. He couldn't even pay the rent on his office space so he was getting evicted from that, too. Two days later, Christopher Hightower purchased a bear devastator crossbow, six arrows, and six special bullet point tips. Hightower had a plan. Friday, September 20th, seemed just like any other day. Ernest worked in his home office, Emily went to school, and Alice went to work at Brown University. Nothing strange or unusual at least until Alice got off the bus home. Ernest was not at the bus stop, and he always met her at the bus stop. So she decided to walk home alone. Emily attended school that day, as usual, and as usual, after school, she went to the Schools Out program at the local YMCA. There was nothing that seemed weird or off until Christopher Hightower showed up to retrieve her from the after-school program. The YMCA staff wasn't happy about releasing Emily to Hightower, but he presented them with Ernest's driver's license and told them that he was there on Ernest's behalf. The next day, Ernest was set to attend a college football game with one of his friends, Jim Page. Sometime during that day, Friday, Ellis called Jim to tell him that Ernest would not be able to attend the game since her mother had taken ill. Alice apologized profusely for ruining their boys' night, and the call ended. Jim didn't think anything of it. He understood that things happen and a family member becoming ill certainly takes precedence over a football game. 
The call between Alice and Jim would be the last contact that the Brendels had with anyone. It was Saturday, September 21st. At that point, Alice was likely being held captive by Hightower with a special bullet-pointed arrow aimed at her head. Jim would later tell police that Alice sounded completely normal. He didn't suspect that there was anything wrong. Their conversation seemed ordinary to him. Meanwhile, Christopher Hightower made himself at home in the farmhouse owned by the Brendels. He used their credit cards to make purchases at the local shopping mall. He hung out at the house. He was only disturbed one time when a delivery man showed up, and Christopher sent the delivery driver away. The following day, Sunday, September 22nd, Hightower drives Ernest's red Toyota to Guilford, Connecticut. There, he visited the home of Ernest's sister, Christine Scrabine. Christopher tells Christine that his family and the Brendels have been taken hostage, most likely by people affiliated with the Mafia. He then tells her that he has most of the $300,000 ransom, but he's $75,000 short. He asks if she can throw in that much money to save them from a grim fate. He walks Christine and her husband, who is a physician, out to the Toyota, where he shows them bloodstains in the car. He again tries to persuade them to give him the $75,000. He tells them, look, we have no time to waste if you want to save these families. When Christine's husband, the doctor, sees how much blood is in the car, he becomes extremely concerned. He tells Hightower that they should call the police right away. Hightower protests. He tells Christine's husband that they can't call law enforcement. That would mean the end of both families. Hightower also mentions that their phones could be tapped so the kidnappers would know if they spoke to law enforcement. The Scrabines and Hightower argue for hours. Eventually, they refuse to give him the money that he was asking for, and he leaves empty-handed. Once he's gone, the Scrabines go to a neighbor's house to call the FBI and report the kidnapping. Christine continues to try and make contact with Ernest and Alice, but she's unsuccessful. At some point during the day, Hightower forged a check in the name of Alice Brendel for the sum of $1,500. He made the check out to himself. The check came from the joint account of Ernest and Alice Brendel. He also mailed a letter to the National Futures Association and the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, written on Ernest Brendel's letterhead and signed by Ernest Brendel. The letter stated that Ernest was withdrawing his complaint against Christopher Hightower. It would later be found that this letter had been printed on a computer in the Brendel home on September 22, 1991. The printing occurred on the day after the Brendels went missing. The next day, after a traffic stop, Hightower was arrested. He was still driving Ernest's red Toyota. The officer who made the stop noticed blood in the back seat. After a preliminary search of the vehicle, police also found several teeth, and yes, I said teeth, half a bag of lime and a crossbow. Once Hightower was in custody, Police found $1,500 in cash and three credit cards belonging to Ernest Brendel. After waiving his Miranda rights, Hightower tells police roughly the same story he told Christine and her husband. 
Hightower said the only thing that he was guilty of was inflating the ransom by $100,000. He was hoping to keep that money for himself so he could dig himself out of the financial hole he found himself in. Sergeant John Lazaro of the Barrington Police was assigned to watch Hightower while he was in custody. Sometime around 4 a.m. the following morning, Lazaro mentioned that he had to leave. He needed to go check out some tire tracks that were found near the Hightower resident. Hightower looked at Lazaro and said, Sarge, you're wasting your time. They're not buried there. He refused to give Lazaro any more information on where the family might be buried, though, and it would take weeks before their bodies were found. A woman out walking her dog about half a mile from the Brendel's home would make the discovery. This location was also about a block from Primrose Elementary School, where Emily attended the third grade. The Brendels had been missing for seven weeks. Ernest was buried in a shallow grave by himself. Alice and her precious daughter, Emily, were found together. This beautiful little family had been brutally murdered by a man who swindled and used them. Hightower refused to admit his involvement. Instead, he admitted to witnessing the murders. He told police that four men, two Latinos and two Asians, were responsible for the murders. Once Hightower figured out that no one was buying the whole, the mob did it, shtick, he changed tactics and tried to plead insanity. He claimed that he was a paranoid schizophrenic, so he couldn't be responsible for the brutal murders. Hightower's lawyers requested that he be tried on each count separately, one trial for each murder and a fourth trial for the kidnapping charge with respect to Emily. The defense claimed that Hightower might want to testify on one or more of the offenses that he was charged with, but he might invoke his Fifth Amendment right not to testify with respect to the others. Well, not surprisingly, that went nowhere. His request was denied. The trial began in March of 1993. A U-Haul was rented to transport the evidence for analysis and presentation in court. There were more than 100 witnesses slated to testify. A jury of 10 men and 6 women were seated in what was to be one of the biggest criminal cases in Rhode Island history. The state medical examiner, Dr. Richard Evans, testified that Ernest Brendel died as a result of two arrow wounds to the chest delivered from a crossbow. One of the arrows had caused blood to pool in his lung. Ernest died a very long, slow, and painful death. He had also suffered non-fatal skull fractures and lacerations of the scalp. The fractures resulted in very little bleeding inside of the skull, which meant they were delivered either very near the time that Ernest died or shortly after he died. Dr. Evans went on to testify that Ernest had suffered arrow wounds to the buttocks. It appeared that Ernest had been brutally tortured before he finally succumbed to his injuries. Alice Brendel had died of strangulation by ligature compression of the neck. A piece of cloth had been found tied around her neck. Little Emily? Her cause of death could not be determined due to decomposition caused by the lime that Hightower had lined the graves with. His intent in using the lime was to speed decomposition. 
Dr. Evans testified that both Alice and Emily had diphenhydramine, or Benadryl, in their systems. The amounts were not fatal, but there was enough to either make them very tired or possibly put them to sleep. His ex-wife, Suzanne, she took the stand and told the court that she had never been kidnapped. She and her children had left willingly before the Brendels went missing. She told the courts how before she left, Hightower had threatened her. He told her that he'd spend $5,000 to hire a hitman to kill her. Suzanne and others testified that Hightower's business was failing. He'd been evicted from his office space, and he was in serious financial trouble. When Suzanne finished testifying against her husband, the judge gave her sole custody of the children and barred Hightower from ever seeing them again. Hightower chose to speak on his own behalf in court. He testified that yes, he did buy a crossbow, but he had only purchased it to deal with a raccoon problem that the Brendels were having on their property. He said that he had spent most of Wednesday, September 18th, hunting raccoons. Then. Hightower went into his Asian, Hispanic, drug-dealing, gangbanger story. He testified that these four had kidnapped the Brendels so they could steal their money. They drove them to the spot where they were found, murdered them, then forced him to dig the graves and bury them so that he would be involved. The jury deliberated for six hours and Christopher Hightower was found guilty of murder, kidnapping, forgery, and breaking and entering the jury recommended a life sentence with no possibility of parole. They cited the relentless torture that Ernest endured and Emily's kidnapping and death as extenuating circumstances. Christopher Hightower was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences for the brutal murders of Ernest, Alice, and Emily. Stephen White, a spokesperson for the state attorney general Jeffrey Pine, told the press, the important thing is that Mr. Hightower will never see the light of day. Of course, Hightower appealed his sentence. He did this on the grounds that he had been denied three separate trials for each victim and a fourth for the kidnapping charge. He also cited that his request for a change of venue and a sequestered jury had been denied. These appeals were rejected. Not long after he was incarcerated in Cranston, Rhode Island, Hightower was attacked by several other inmates. The injuries he sustained required stitches. Because of this attack, he was relocated to a different prison in Illinois. Hightower used his relocation as an excuse to file numerous lawsuits and other filings which allowed him to be transported back to Rhode Island to appear in court for these proceedings. He filed two more lawsuits against the prison system in 2010 and in 2013. Both of these suits were dismissed. He currently remains incarcerated for the brutal murders of Ernest, Alice, and Emily. Ernest Brendel was a hardworking, successful lawyer who only wanted the best for his family. Alice Brendel loved her life as a mother and a librarian. She loved the peaceful, safe surroundings of Barrington, Rhode Island. Both of them treasured their only daughter, Emily, a beautiful girl with her mother's sweet dimples and her father's strong chin. Ernest and Alice never got to see their daughter grow up. They never got to go to her fourth-grade play 
or her seventh grade spelling bee, or her high school graduation. Ernest never got to walk her down the aisle at her wedding, and Alice didn't get to give Emily something borrowed. Emily never got to experience life beyond third grade. Evil found this beautiful family living a storybook life in one of the safest places in the United States, and Evil destroyed it. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.